Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 139. You ready? Let's pray together. Lord, our hearts are inclined toward you. We pause, even after singing such great songs, expressions of praise, we just take a quiet moment to tell you that we love you, and that we need you, and that we want you to reveal yourself to us. We pray, Lord, that today would be like the rest of the year, where we hear your voice speaking into our lives, dealing with our situations. Because the more we're exposed to your truth, the more we'll be conformed to it. We pray that that would be the net result. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. There were two brothers. One was eight years of age and one was ten years old. They were always in trouble. In fact, in their town, if something went wrong the town just sort of figured that those two kids were somehow involved. Well, because of their reputation, their parents decided they got to do something. And they heard about a a preacher who had a way with kids. That was his reputation. So the mother asked if the pastor would come over and speak to her two boys. He agreed to. And uh, he said, I first want to meet with the eight-year-old, the youngest, in the morning first. And then after that, I'll meet with the ten-year-old. So the preacher came to their house And uh, he was a big man, deep, booming voice, very intimidating. And that was the whole idea, he thought. So he got the eight-year-old in the living room, and he stood over the top of him. And he kind of wanted the kids to realize that God sees everything they're doing and is everywhere when they're doing it. And so the preacher, in a deep, booming booming voice, said to uh, the eight-year-old, "'Where's God?' Well, the little boy was so intimidated by this, he dropped his jaw, eyes got as wide as saucers, didn't say a word, followed up by a second question. The preacher asked, same question, where's God? No answer. Third time, the old preacher stuck his finger in the boy's face, where's God? At that, the little boy jumped up, ran out of the room, ran into his bedroom, into his closet, slammed the door. His older brother quickly followed him and said, What's up? And the eight-year-old turned to his older brother and said, We're really in trouble this time, dude. God's missing, and they think we done it. (laughs) Where's God? Good question. Actually, a great question. A question everybody asks. It's a question that we want to consider this morning. Now, the name, name of my message, the title that you saw, is not really a word. I just stuck all of these letters together. But this could spell one of two things, depending on who you are. This could spell, as in the next case, God is nowhere. The atheist would be predisposed to taking those letters and spelling that. Or the same letters could be configured to spell that. God is now here. God is nowhere, or God is now here. It all depends on 
on, on how you're predisposed with those letters. We want to talk about this morning God's presence. And Psalm 139 is our starting point. And it's because this psalm is so filled with great, deep teaching of the characteristics of God, for to be exact, that David discovers this one as well. Now, last time we were together, we looked at what God knows. That's verses 1 through 6. Verses 7 through 12 talks about where God is. And you probably already discovered that this psalm is set up with four stanzas of six verses apiece. And each one of those stanzas takes a whole new facet of God's character and explores it in poetic language. And so we want to discover this second one, where God is. David has a very simple question that he begins with in verse 7. Where? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Essentially, where is God? It's a great question. As I said, it's a question certainly every child asks. It's funny how when we're kids, we ask very honest questions, and the older we get, somehow we learn to put those questions at bay, or it's not appropriate to ask that. We get uncomfortable. But kids have no problem with it. A little boy looked up at the full moon and said, Mommy, is God up on the moon? And she said, well, honey, God is everywhere. And so he said, well, is God in my tummy? And she just didn't know what to do with that one. Well, sort of. You know, she's wondering, where is this leading? Well, it was leading somewhere because the next thing is, Mommy, I think God wants a happy meal. (laughs) So David's question is simple, where? Where? And David's answer to the question is equally as simple. There, and there, and there. And three times, that's what he says. Where is God? He's there, there, and there. If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, three times he says it. So this second stanza of the song, so to speak, is divided up with a rhetorical question, where is God, followed by a conclusion of where God is. A rhetorical question followed by a rational conclusion. So let's look at verse 7. Here's the question. Where can I go from your spirit? Or, where can I flee from your presence? Now, just something about the question itself. This is a rhetorical question. And a rhetorical question is different than a typical question. A typical question is asked to get information, not a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is simply a statement in question form. It's to make a statement. It's to lead you to a conclusion. And there's only one answer to it. So it's a rhetorical question. It's not like David is saying, you know, I'm really trying hard to get away from God. Can anybody tell me a place where I can run away and hide? That's not the issue. It's a rhetorical question. Where can I go? Where can I flee? Now, my question is, why would anyone want to run away from God? Answer, well, it depends on how you're living. If you're an obedient person, you're in conformity with God, you're doing what He wants, 
like David was at this particular point in his life, he knew you can't get away from God, and why would I even want to try? But if, on the other hand, you're not obedient, you're living not right with God, you're being disobedient, then those kind of people will do everything they can to try some way to hide from the presence of God. Adam and Eve tried this. They disobeyed God. And the Bible says, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. How stupid is that? I mean, think about it. Honey, quick, we got to hide from God. Get behind this bush. Okay, here's God, the creator, made both of them and the bush and the trees, and they're trying to hide from God, who is there every day. But that's how irrational people become in trying to hide from God. Jonah was the same way. Jonah was a prophet. And he must have believed that God doesn't like to hang out west because he tried to go west instead of east. God called him to Nineveh. He decides, I'm going to go the opposite direction, 2,000 miles to Tarshish. That's Gibraltar. That's the area of Spain. Listen to what the scripture says. Jonah went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. What does that mean? Because if anybody would know better, it would be Jonah. You can't escape God. What does it mean he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord? Simply, he's quitting. He's trying to flee from standing before God as an obedient prophet. He's handing in his resignation. You might say he wants to be a non-profit organization. (laughs) Sorry about that. Couldn't resist. (laughs) He's hanging up the sign, I'd rather go fishing. In his case, whale fishing. But God called him in one direction. He escapes, he thinks, to the other direction, out west. I had a dog like this. I've told you about him in the past. A Springer Spaniel, cute as all get out, either dumb or stubborn. That's I'll take the second. Because every time I would call him and say, come, he would turn directly on his heels and go in the opposite direction. I should have renamed him Jonah. So let's answer the rhetorical question. Where can I go from God's presence? Where can I flee from God's spirit? Answer, nowhere. So put it into the positive. Where is God? God is everywhere. That's the right answer. Like the mother said to the son, God is everywhere. We call this the omnipresence of God. And correctly stated, it is that God is everywhere present in the totality or the wholeness of his being at all times. God is everywhere present with his whole being at all times. Now, that is either a great comfort to you or a great concern. Again, depending on how you're living. If you're not living right, then you can, you can run, but you can't hide. You can decide, I'm not going to go to church, or I'm going to walk out on this sermon in the middle of it, or when my friends come over and talk about God, I'll change the subject, or I used to have a Bible, but now I'm going to hide it. You can do all of those things But God is inescapable. God is omnipresent. That's the truth that emerges from this paragraph of Psalm 139. 
But there is a text, I'm going to call it the primary text on the presence of God, found in the book of Job. Now, in the book of Job, this is God speaking to Job and his friends. It's chapter 23 of Job, verses 23 and 24. The Lord says, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not afar off? In other words, I'm in all places. Can anyone hide in secret places so that I shall not see him, says the Lord? Again, both are rhetorical questions. Do I not fill the heaven and the earth, says the Lord? That's the teaching of the omnipresence of God. But be careful. Don't confuse this biblical truth of God being everywhere with a false teaching known as pantheism. Some of you have heard of pantheism. It's different than omnipresence. The biblical teaching of the omnipresence of God says that God is present in His creation, though He's separate from it. But pantheism says God is His creation. They're one and the same. There's no distinction between them. God isn't just active in the world. God is the world. So as an example, the Bible would affirm that right now where you're sitting with your Bible open listening, God is with you. A pantheism would say the chair you're sitting in is God. The earth that holds it up is God. And when you go outside and see the trees and the bushes and the grass, all of that is God. It's all one and the same. There's no separation and no distinction. That's an ancient belief system known as pantheism. And I believe it's still around in a different form. I believe there's something, I'm going to call it neo-pantheism. And I think it shows up uh, in earth worship, in hyper-environmentalism, where people so focus on the environment and the earth And there's days of worship for it, and it's all about the environment because that is the only thing they know, and that has become essentially their God. There's slogans like, love your mother, or the environment is everything. There was a French teacher who even asked her nephew, well, well, isn't God just Mother Nature? Answer, no. God is eternal and separate. God has no beginning and no end. This world, this universe, had a beginning. All scientists will tell you that and will have an end. It's winding down. So God is outside of it but created it and is present in His creation but is not His creation. That's the omnipresence of God. Now for us in the New Testament, it gets even better. Because it's not just like, yeah, there's kind of like God is everywhere and He's big and He's out there. For us, it's more personal. Because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus came to the earth and for 33 and a half years lived here. And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but he left. But he, before he left, told his disciples, it's good for you that I go. Because if I can't go or if I don't go, I won't be able to send the counselor, the comforter, who will be with you. And then Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he was referring to the presence of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of the believer. So that is the rhetorical question. Where is God? Everywhere. Where can you get away from God? Nowhere. That's followed in the next few verses by 
three rational conclusions. The rhetorical question is followed by the rational conclusion. And David says three things about the omnipresence of God. First, death itself can't hide a person from God. Verse 8, if I ascend into heaven, you're there. Now, we would take that first part of the verse and go, duh. I mean, that's God's unique dwelling place. Though God is everywhere present, heaven is his unique dwelling place. Even Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We understand that that's HQ for God. That's headquarters. That's the base of operations. But notice the next part of the verse. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. You see the word hell? It's an ancient Hebrew word, Sheol. Sixty-five times it appears in the Old Testament. It is typically a word that means the grave, the place of the dead. It's where people get buried. It's a general term to refer to the abode of those who have died. Now, in ancient thinking... A person in the grave, a person in Sheol, was cut off from God. You die, you go down into the earth, and you hang up the sign, God is nowhere. That's how the ancients thought, not David. David would say, "Uh uh-uh, God is now here. He's present on this side of the grave on earth, and when you die, God will be present on that side of the grave. Because death is a transition, right? It's a threshold. For the believer, well, when a Christian dies, you really can't say he died. You have to say he moved. To be absent from the body, Paul said, is to be present with the Lord. That's where a person experiences the presence of God in a very special way. Unlike here, where we apprehended by faith, it'll be face to face in glory. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But but flip the coin. Go to the other side. What about the unbeliever who his whole life or her whole life has tried to get away from God or not believe in God or discount God? Surely death ends it all. Nope. Even there, even in the grave, believer or unbeliever, you can't get rid of God even at death. Because the Bible puts it this way. It is appointed unto every man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Not after this, you float around. Not after this, you're eternally unconscious. But after this comes the judgment. Imagine the fate of a man like, let's take Adolf Hitler. Hated Jews, killed millions of them, killed Christians who protected them, and he dies. And who does he see? Jesus Christ, a Jew, who is his judge for eternity. He cannot escape Christ. He cannot escape this Jewish Messiah. He cannot escape the judgment and the fate that beholds him. Death can't separate him from God. There's a verse of Scripture I was looking at early this morning. I want to share it with you. It is a frightening verse. It goes along with this for the unbeliever. This is Revelation 14, verse 10. 
He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, which is poured out on all the earth. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's a frightening piece of truth. I have a book in my library. I pull it out from time to time. It's simply called The Last Words of Saints and Sinners. And what Herbert Lockyer, the author, has done is to find people throughout history, believers and non-believers, and give us the last words before they died. It's a great book of comfort. It's a great book of terror. Here's a couple of unbelievers. One was Altamont who lived in the 1800s. He was an agnostic writer. He wrote a lot of words, not believing in God, discounting it, being very confident about it. But at his death, he said, As for deity, nothing less than an almighty could inflict what I feel now. Remorse for the past throws my thoughts onto the future. O thou blasphemed and indulgent God, hell is a refuge if it hides me from thy frown. Can you imagine breathing those words as your last words after living that way? Tragic. Then there was Voltaire, the French atheist who was very vocal against Christ. In fact, while he was alive, he said of Jesus Christ, curse the wretch. But when he died, among his last words were, I'll give you half of what I'm worth for six months of life, and then I shall go to hell, and you shall go with me. O Christ, O Jesus Christ. Tragic again and powerful. No, death can't hide any person, believer or unbeliever, from God. And David states that in this poetic language. The second conclusion David comes to is that because God is everywhere, distance can't hide us from God. Look at the next two verses, 9 and 10 of Psalm 139. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Now this is Hebrew poetry. It's a description of distance especially going west over the Mediterranean. The sun rises in the east and instantly its rays permeate everything even out toward the Mediterranean. Picture where David is writing this. And and it travels instantly. So if I were to rephrase this, David is saying, if I could travel the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, and shoot across the universe to any place, God is there. You're there, even there. Back in 1968, I don't know how many of you were around back then. Usually there's more people first service that were around back then than second and third service. But um, 1968, on um, Christmas Eve, if you were around, you remember, Apollo 8 was orbiting and on Christmas Eve they gave a great gift to the United States of America to the whole world the three astronauts aboard Apollo 8 read Genesis 1 1 through 10 
I remember, I was a little kid, I remember hearing it. In the beginning, you know, in that... In the beginning. You know, in that crackly voice that comes from space. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And they all three took turns reading the Genesis account from space for the earth. Now, what a lot of you may not realize, as soon as they got back... Madeline Murray O'Hare, the atheist, sued NASA because they said that. They were saying, God is now here. We, we feel it. This is, this is so unique and God is awesome. We're, we're here. We get it. And she would say, God is nowhere. What you may not know is that in the Apollo 11 mission, Buzz Aldrin on the lunar surface brought the elements of communion with him and broke bread in fellowship with God. And he was also declaring, God is now here. Now, not everybody would agree. There were a group of cosmonauts that went up from Russia, and one of them came back and proudly said to an audience, I was, I've been up in space, and I did not see God. And someone in the audience turned to his buddy and said, If he'd have stepped out of a spacesuit, he would have seen God. <laughs> I've always loved that. Okay, but what does all this mean to us, applicationally, personally? If death can't hide us from God, and if distance can't hide us from God, this is what it means. I don't have to go to any special place to meet with Him. I don't have to go on a pilgrimage to a special holy place or a shrine, crawl on my knees and get them bloody and say something, you know, profound. God is everywhere, thus in my apartment, in my house, at my job, I can open the Bible and I can pray and I can instantly make contact with heaven and have God's blessings at my disposal. We do make a mistake as human beings thinking that God is near or far in terms of a place or space. And back in the Old Testament, worship was very geocentric. They went to a temple. That's where you bring the animal. That's where you meet with God. You come from your tribe to Jerusalem, because that's where God lived. And even to this day, you can see it in Jerusalem. If you go there, the tour guides will sometimes say tongue-in-cheek, but there's an air of seriousness about it. They'll say, look, you can pray to God anywhere on earth, but here, it's a local call. There's a special place that God will meet with you, but that's not really true, is it? Even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't he even say to God, Look, even heaven and the heaven of heavens can't contain you, much less this temple that I have built. Paul would agree. In Acts 17, he addressed the Athenians. And he said, point blank, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. You're the temple. You're the temple. All of you who know Christ... You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. I remember as a kid, I would run through our church building after service. And we were four boys, and I was the youngest, and I would take the cues of my older brother. So we'd, we were kids. We'd run around. And I remember hearing my parents, I think every Sunday, as well as the clergyman, say this, Don't run in the house of God. Or my parents, Don't run in God's house. Then I read the Bible and I discovered, hey, I am God's house. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in me very uniquely as one committed to Him.
So death can't hide you from God. Distance can't hide you from God. And here's a third conclusion David draws. Darkness doesn't hide us from God. Verse 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the light or even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day and the darkness as the light and the light are both alike to you. I always, always found it interesting that bars and nightclubs aren't well lit, but they're dark. And I've never, not that I frequent them a lot, but I have noticed, the ones I've noticed, they're not like the lights turned up bright. It's very dim, and that's for a purpose, because darkness obscures detail. It hides people. People feel better when they're hidden in doing certain things. Most crimes are committed under the cover of darkness. Saul, in the Old Testament, went to meet with the witch of Endor. And he knew it was wrong to do it. The Bible says Saul disguised himself and he went at night. When Judas betrayed Jesus Christ in the New Testament, the writer wants us to know the same details. He then went out immediately and it was night. And Jesus used this darkness metaphorically when he said men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Well, that's really not the issue here. David isn't trying to cover up anything. But I I want you to notice something. This is, I think, the meaning of it. Verse 11 is a very important word. Don't miss this. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me. See the word fall? It's a very singular Hebrew word found only here that literally means to bruise. The darkness would bruise me or crush me or oppress me. I don't know your experience with the dark, but um, when it's completely dark, your mind does different things. The thoughts come out like at no other time. And you deal with things mentally almost oppressively as at no other time. First of all, when it's dark, I, I I can know my own house, but I will stumble into walls every night. Because I have no control, I have no frame of reference that's provided by my eyes in the light. Well, the the idea here is a period of darkness that is oppressive. Now, all of us have gone through dark times, and I'm speaking spiritually, emotionally. You might talk to a friend and say something like, this season of my life has been really dark. In fact, if you were honest, you might have even asked, where was God. Where is He? Where was He? Now, that's really a whole other study we want to look at, God in times of suffering, but I don't want to sound simplistic. You know the answer. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. That's a promise for you and for me. Lo, I am with you always. There was a minister on an airplane. He was sitting next to a lady who was obviously nervous to fly. They were still taxiing on the runway. The reverend was there. The lady next to him, an older lady, had her Bible open, head down. She was praying fervently. He could tell she was nervous. The plane started speeding up. She got more nervous, filled with anxiety, prayed more fervently. As the plane began to lift off, she grabbed the sides of the seat, 
sweat pouring down her face and the preacher finally turned to the lady, put his hand on her shoulder and said, you don't have to worry. Jesus said, I am with you always. And she looked back and snapped at him. He didn't say that. He said, lo, I am with you always. And right now we're getting up pretty high. That poor lady needed a newer translation of her Bible, didn't she? Well, this is a great truth, is it not? The omnipresence of God. It really is. It's a great comfort as well as a great concern, depending on who you are and how you live. Think of what a comfort it was, for instance, to Moses, who didn't want to lead the children of Israel out of bondage, thought he couldn't do it, thought he couldn't speak very well. And all God told him is, I'm with you. That's enough. I'll go with you. My presence will go with you. What a comfort it was later on to Joshua, who was going to take over for Moses. And God said, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. That's enough. Go. What a comfort this was to Gideon when he faced the army of the Midianites, and he was outnumbered. And the Lord said, you will defeat the Midianites as one man, for behold, I am with you. Same promise. It's what all he needed. And what a great comfort to Paul the Apostle. And you know, there were times in Paul's life where he must have said, Hey, where's God? This is not the way it's supposed to work out. He was going from Athens to Corinth, and things didn't pan out very well in Corinth. And he must have been very discouraged, for the Bible says, The Lord spoke to him at night and said, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And what about us? What about us in this failing economy? Where's God? What about us hearing about the Middle East crisis that could explode and get a lot bigger than it is? Where's God? The promise to us, repeated in the book of Hebrews, spoken by Jesus. I'll read you the Hebrews passage, Hebrews 13. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Very good wisdom for those facing a financial downfall. Let your life be without covetousness. Be content with the things that you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in Greek, it's very emphatic. I will never leave you, no ever, no ever leave you nor forsake you. God's presence. Where's God? God's everywhere, but uniquely dwelling inside the child of God to give you whatever you need this year. And if I could just say at the beginning of this year, if there's ever to be a truth that you will filter all of the activities, all of the decisions of your year through, let it be this one. God is there in the quiet, silent places, dark moments, times you make your plans. Filter everything through this great truth. God is now here. But I will also say, if you're not walking with Him, if you're not a believer, you shouldn't be comforted. You should be concerned. Or as the old saying goes, be afraid, be very afraid. 
In the old Roman Empire, there used to be a saying, the whole world, they used to say, the whole world is one great prison to the malefactor, to the criminal. In other words, you, you might hide under a bush or in another place, but the whole world is controlled by Rome. We're going to find you, and we'll bring you to justice. So no matter how you live apart from God, one day you will cross the threshold and you will face God as your judge. So let me just implore you in closing. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, I, I would ask, why not? What in the world is keeping you back from that important choice? After the service... In this prayer room, right over here, to your left, up front, or, or the pastors, just go and say, I, I don't want to live another day like this. I need, to, I need to surrender to Christ. Our Heavenly Father, as we uh, conclude our time together, as we leave the presence of one another, we're not leaving your presence. You don't live uniquely in this building that is called by some a church. You are everywhere. And moreover, you uniquely dwell not only in heaven, but in the life of every believer who's enthroned you as king. Jesus promised that, that he would come to those who love him, that the Father would dwell with them, the Son would dwell, and he said the Holy Spirit would occupy us. Lord, I pray that this wonderful, great truth would be something that would come to our minds more and more this year as we live in the light of your presence. So much so that in the times where we would say, I don't feel God, we would say, ah, but I know better. I know better. Comfort us, Lord. Strengthen us. And compel those who don't know you to commit themselves to you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.